Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of EMS on the Mountain. Today, Mike and I are going to talk about our experiences with the newly developed Wilderness Paramedic Certification from the IBSC. And for those of you that don't know, the IBSC is the same ones that administer the flight medic and critical care medic, as well as certified flight nurse, a couple other exams. So it means we're board certified. I don't know what that means, but mm. uh, it sounds cool. It looks neat on your resume, I guess. Yeah, so I we're think not going to get in. Are, are a different agency, aren't they? I thought it was just pre-medicine. But IBSC, oh, it might but be. That's how much I know. No, right? I think you're right. I'm confusing yeah. IBSC with anyway. Long story yeah. short, maybe I don't know. That's how much I know about the IBSC. <laughs> That's how much we we keep track of things we talk about here on this podcast, boys and girls. <laughs> <laughs> so, a couple things up front. A, this is totally unscripted. This is just Mike and I, essentially, like we'd be sitting around the table on duty. We're just going to talk about this, a bit of our experiences, what some of our thoughts and opinions are. None of this is in stone. No, we're not going to give you specific question examples. We'll talk about some study areas that you should probably focus on if you're thinking about taking this test. And uh, yeah, I mean, bottom line is we're not going to give away any test secrets, if you will. So if, yeah, you, if you're looking happening. for a detailed inside knowledge, now we're not going to do that. We're going to keep the integrity of the test as intact as we possibly can. But essentially, what you're going to hear from us is what you might read off of the IBSC website when prepping for the test itself. You're just going to get our opinions and experiences after having taken the test and where for us, where we focused individually on our study and prep and then how that played out on the exam itself. So with that follow up from episode 15, where we talked to David Pfeiffer about the test before the test, and now we've taken the test and now we're going to give you our thoughts on the test. And if you're thinking about taking it, take our advice, don't take our advice, whatever, no skin off my back, but uh, we did pass. So ideally you can assume that we know enough to, I'll, I'll use the term, point out certain study materials that were beneficial to us. And we wanted to provide that beta to everyone because there's a large swath of information that this test covers, a large yeah. swath. Yeah, for those that are interested, and just if you look on the social media, there's a lot of people who are very, very interested in waiting for the, the main test to open up in March. Everybody's asking, what do I need to study for? And you go to the IBSC website and you look up the the WPC exam and their prep material, and you will see there is essentially they will list everything under the sun yeah, all the as things. part of part of your study prep. Which, in Sean's personal opinion, they made it way too broad. And I think, mind you, this is from the beta perspective, early developmental phase of this test. I think that'll narrow itself down and get refined yeah. as the test matures and more detailed and consistent numbers start coming in from from participants. So that may be narrowed down a bit. Or it may not, just because of the way the test is designed. Uh, yeah, we have we have no control, insight, or not inside knowledge as to how that thought process works. We're just making an observation that it's a large swath of information. All right, Mike. So go ahead and give us a quick overview of test. All right. Questions? So for those what that are not familiar with uh, the IBSE testing model, essentially for a standard exam test, you get 135 questions. It is a I'll call it a rigorously controlled testing environment. Right now, I believe they only do it through Prometric, which is an international standard. Like this company specializes in 
certification exams, industry yeah. exams in a large swath of industries, right? Nursing, healthcare, construction, yeah. banking, management. finance, yeah, like, project management, like, all those things. But it's yeah. when you come into the site, if you're doing it on site, you get a full pat down, you got to show them the inside of your pockets. Like it's a rigorous testing structure. But yes. IBSC exams, it's 135 questions. You get two and a half hours to complete the exam. Of those 135 questions, 110 of them are what are called scored. The IBSC is constantly working on improving and deepening their pool of questions available to be randomly selected for test participants. So of the 135 questions, 110 of them are considered scored, which goes toward your total completion rate. And then 25 of the questions are unscored, meaning they're still collecting enough data on the output and the answers selected by the, the students and how the questions are asked. It's a very, very controlled structure, if I understand it correctly, based on what I know of how they work. Yeah. Um, and those 25 questions don't count toward your total uh, score on the exam, but you don't get to know which questions are scored and which questions are not. So effectively, you are taking a 135 question test. You get two and a half hours to do it with, if good at the mathematics, it's just over one minute per question for two and a half hours straight, where you got to bang in the answers to questions and kind of know the information because you only get a minute, right? A minute is a long time if you're, if you come well prepared, if you're trying to think through the solution real time without having a good foundation, it's very, very hard to keep that one minute per question cadence going throughout the exam. Yeah. And uh, I'd say the closest analog for nobody, for, for anyone, I guess, has not taken a prior IBSC exam. And I had not, and Mike had not until this I point. had not. Closest thing for those of us in the EMS world would be taking the National Registry written exam, right? Yep. So you have, this doesn't use the same computer adjusted model that the registry does. This is straight 135 questions, but the questions are similar in their layout, their format. You get scenario based, you get some straight knowledge based, but you get that same time frame. So when you're going into that same registry exam and you and they base it on the time that you're given, if you have to go to the full set of questions, you get that minute per, which if you know the material is good. If you don't know the material, you're going to find yourself falling behind fairly quickly. Yeah, so while two and a half hours kind of seems like a long time for 135 questions, it can be plenty or it can make you really start to sweat because you yeah. really are going to the full 135. This isn't like registry where you might get to 150, but you're pretty smart or you're really not. And you got to 75 questions and the test turned off, right? <laughs> not. <laughs> because <laughs> um, well, it works both ways right so it, it does you're yeah. doing so there's bad the whole, computer yeah. th there's a whole different mathematical calculation that goes into those exams for the ibsc Correct. it is straight up there's 135 questions there are answers you provide and based on how many you get right as a percentage of the total it's whether or not you have passed the exam yep. they are thought of by many they're talked about by many people as some of the hardest exams you will take yes it's just the way it is right yeah so speaking of which and this is rough math based on what we currently know about the uh, test. Right now, it's looking at just under a 50% pass rate from the beta testers. And there's yeah, some assumptions in that all 100 people took the beta. Yeah, and based on some other factors in there. But so it's, it is a very challenging test. It is also not a hard test. So I guess with that, let's lead into that. So who's this exam for? So again, if you read the IBSC website, they list who the intended audience is to take this exam. But realistically, I mean, they list nurses, nurse practitioners, PAs, and doctors who can take this. And there, there are a couple of doctors who are on the development team who now have their 
WPC certification, which cool. They're clearly not paramedics, but uh, Actually, you know, it's, I think it's they design- are. Uh, I think not all of them. Paramedic. No, but so don't think of it as truly a, just a paramedic level exam. Think of it as an advanced practitioner exam. So that's right, paramedics, you're tossed in there with PAs and doctors. That's how advanced we are. <laughs> no? Don't lie to yourself. All right. So paramedics is the target audience. And it's actually, okay, this is the part that I think people really need to, to absorb. This test is designed for paramedics who actually, like no kidding, work in a wilderness and austere environments. This is not just paramedics who have an interest in hiking and the outdoors who are maybe climbers. If you are not actually working in the wilderness and austere environments, you are going to be one of those people who finds this test much more challenging. Just like yeah. if you are not an actual critical care paramedic who's doing critical care work, taking the CCPC or FPC is not as easy as you think it is, right? There's a lot of experience-based knowledge goes into a lot of this exam, which is what makes that minute per question either good or bad for you. Yep. So I know Mike wanted to discuss a little bit what exactly does wilderness and austere mean in this context, right? So it's a very those are very broad categories in a certain uh, yeah, extent. So but for this exam, and this is really where the, the breath comes in, the question base can be on anything from mountainous terrain, high altitude treatments, all the way down through hydration, cold water immersion, working on, an, on, a, on a remote environment. So not necessarily, quote unquote, wilderness in the traditional sense, but you're the primary care provider at a clinic on an oil derrick in the middle of Alaska, yeah. and you have to provide care, right? That's all fair game for this exam, right? You have to understand those foundational principles. And, and they say it right on their website, right? This covers this particular swath of knowledge. There's a bunch of materials on there yeah. that are listed. And you could get any of it, right? It's just kind of the way it is. So it's, I mean, I'm sure it's not, I've not sat the CCPC yet, but I'm sure it's similar, right? There's everything from blood gases to ventilator operations to, I yeah. don't know, I think of anything Standard else trauma else. management. Standard trauma management. It's a wide swath of knowledge base, right? But this is a new exam, so there aren't any preparation courses out there yet. Uh, there yep. isn't any straight framework or, or, like, if you go look at the prep stuff for, for like, a CCPC or an FPC, right? There's going to be flight physiology, ventilator operations, respiratory management. Like, there, there's kind of a, a structure around it. We don't quite have that yet for the WPC. No. So you just kind of have to study all the things as you're preparing yeah. for the exam. Yeah, and uh, one of the things, and again, this is captured on the IBSC website, this test, just like their other exams, do not measure baseline paramedic knowledge. This is what we'll call advanced knowledge. So every one of us from EMT through paramedic, and we're going to stick with the EMS role because that's just Mike's area, right? Everybody, whether you went to EMT, advanced EMT, paramedic, everybody got at least a foundational introduction to heat injuries and cold injuries, right? But you didn't go very deep into it. Well, this test gets much more into the nuanced diagnosis and treatments of common wilderness and austere things like hot and cold injuries. It's no longer just, oh, they're hot. I have to recognize heat stroke and that's a life-threatening emergency. So I have to get to the hospital right away, right? If I'm a paramedic, I should get IV access and give some fluids and start driving. It gets into more, right? It gets into those environmental impacts in a lot more detail. So if you're going into this as just a paramedic who you're just going to assume you've got enough knowledge to take this test without really, really no kidding studying or having worked in the environment for a while, you're going to find it challenging because you're going to find those questions are asking 
for a much more detailed knowledge base as far as like treatment pathologies, the pathophysiology behind a lot of it, et cetera. Yeah. So mean you, you just pass. need to pair with that. You need to come with a depth of knowledge that's commensurate with the test. Yeah. Right? This test assumes a baseline knowledge in paramedicine. Yeah. So here's, here's the stuff we found most beneficial. This is not to say that this is the, the proverbial Bible of WPC studies, right? Yeah. Uh, but this is what this, Sean and I spent a lot of time preparing for this beta. Between the two of us, I think we, we spent quite a bit of time. Yeah. Uh, I think between the two of us also, we, we purchased all of the recommended books except like one yeah, or two. We didn't both buy all of it, but between the two of us, I think we acquired most, if not all of the content. And a lot of it we did duplicate. So uh, right off the bat, Sean, I think my favorite piece of content in preparation and just generally like a great piece of, of reference material on whole is the Coram field guide, right? It's, yeah. it's an app format. You can carry it in your, in your phone. It has, I don't want this to sound like a, a sales pitch for it because you cannot currently get it in paper format. I don't believe. Uh, yeah, I have believe to it's only it as, as an electronic is an app, but it's, it's great referential material. <clears throat> I've used it after preparation and, and taking the test just, to refer back to and refresh my memory on things. Just before the podcast, Sean and I were just talking about proper finger thoracostomy technique and it's in there, right? We pulled up our co-ramp guide and, and went and took a look at it. Excuse me, co-ROM guide. College of Remote and Offshore Medicine. Uh, if yeah, you're going to go and probably. look for this thing. so. And there's a link on the IBSC website. Yeah. But it's a great piece of reference material. And if you take the time to actually read through the whole thing, it provides quite a depth and knowledge of various things that can come up in a wilderness or austere setting. Yeah. And uh, for those that are out there right now going, well, what part of it do I have to study? All of it. All uh, of it. Like, no All kidding. Like, I would strongly encourage you. And you don't have to become a master of them all, but you need to, I would certainly recommend you read through that field guide multiple times and try to absorb as much of it as you can, at least at a foundational level, because it will cover a lot of the advanced practice pieces that are contained within the exam. Not all of them, but a very large portion of them, or at least enough where if you're familiar enough with the materials in that field guide, you can probably parse out the correct answer on a question. Yeah, I would agree. Anyway, I can, I can wax poetic about it. I did not know. I mean, I knew the CoRAM excuse me, the College of Remote Medicine existed. Like I knew it as a foundational thing. I knew that they did a lot of education with special operators and folks that are in more austere environments, but I didn't realize the value in their content until I started studying for the exam. And it, I feel like spending the time with that, that manual made me a better provider on whole. It gave me a better depth of knowledge. All right, moving on before I, I wax too poetic about how amazing. <laughs> the yeah. Wilderness Medical Society Clinical Practice Guidelines. 100%, you must read these, you must know these, like across the board, there's no way around it. These are absolutely foundational for this exam. In, in my experience, you need to get on the website, Wellness Medical Society, download the clinical practice guidelines, and you need to be incredibly familiar with them, like intimately familiar with them. And that will help you out tremendously on a lot of the, uh, on a lot of the content. Yep. Again, these are foundational things, right? I'll use the heat and cold injuries again, but the depth of, of information you'll be able to glean from these guidelines and the, the information you'll be able to pull from them is, is well worth spending the time on it. Uh, yeah. And then finally in our top three, there are, the, I shouldn't say there are, the reality is 
Hamel said there are ropes in the wilderness. That's a dumb statement. Yes, if you bring them with you, there are ropes in the wilderness. <laughs> the reality is that one of the things that differentiates more austere medicine from what I'll call very urban medicine, and this is not a hard and fast rule because there are lots of truckies out there right now that are going to be like, hey, what are you talking about? We use ropes all the time. Yeah. The wilderness environment as two specialties, i.e. rope work and helicopters, right? Yep. Like you just use them more. And it's actually pretty uncommon to find like air evac team working out of a major city that's doing short hauls, right? Like that's just not really a thing. You don't short haul between buildings very often, but you do short haul <laughs> into the wilderness, right? But helicopter operation, short haul, rope work, understanding how to calculate T factors, understanding the, the foundational principles. And I'm, I'm probably waxing poetic because we haven't really talked about it on the podcast, but I've been doing the wilderness rope work thing for a long, long time, right? So this, yeah. I, I teach it. This is my thing. I mean, I've, I've got 20 years of experience. I've helped in writing some manuals. This is, this is the thing I know. And so it didn't seem overly hard for me. But if you've never put together with a Z-drag or done a three-to-one or a four-to-one or understood friction coefficients and calculating load factors <laughs> and things like that, you don't have to get super in-depth. I don't expect anybody to be able to calculate you know, the actual load on the strand of rope per se. But you have to understand the principle, right? You have yeah. to understand what's safe and what's not where you're going to get hurt, where you're not, because the wilderness does require this, right? And anybody that's done wilderness work for some period of time knows that like, being proficient on rope is just one of the skill sets you need to be a good wilderness practitioner. Yeah. And I think, well, and where Mike's going is, is that reference we're talking about is the National Park Service Tech Rescue Manual. Oh, yeah, um, I guess I should have given the name of the book. Yeah. <laughs> but, and so, and obviously there's a lot of paramedics out there that are going, well, but I'm in Arizona in my particular jurisdiction. We have no requirement for any of this information. And the IBSA will be, or IBSC will be like, cool story. Here's the deal. This is made for practitioners across the board in multiple disciplines. So you must have at least a foundational base of knowledge in all of it. Just like FBC, CCPC, you might not deal with the pediatric critical care transports, but you get those questions on those exams, right? So this is just another area where Maybe you are one of those guys that's working out there on an oil rig or one of these remote clinics someplace and rope work is not part of your requirements. Well, it is now. At least you need to be now. Passively familiar with exam. the absolute fundamentals. And again, the more you know, the easier it is. There were questions on my exam that did deal with some rope rescue. We're not going to get too detailed on, on what they asked. Just know that there were questions on the subject area, as well as, as Mike's mentioned, helicopters, right? There are questions about helicopter operations. Yep. So you got to be familiar with not just the standard EMS, urban EMS side of, oh, an LZ must be a minimum of 50 by 50 or 100 by 100, depending on your thing. There's, there's some other information that actual helicopter operations you need to be familiar with. And there is a book is, listed, we, we didn't talk about it in depth, but there is a book listed on the IBSC site. I think it's called I'm, I'm actually looking at it right now as I say this, so I know what it's called. Helicopter Rescue Techniques. It goes much more in depth than just the size of an LZ. You should yeah. have a cursory knowledge of helicopter rescue techniques and ways to stay safe when operating in and around helicopters, not just cursorily on the outside waiting for them to land. Yeah, and I got to be honest, that's one area that I, I did no additional studying on. And when a couple of those questions popped up, I was fortunate to understand and know through my own experience and training that this is most likely the answer they're looking for. I don't know if I got them right, but I passed. So I must have done something okay with most of them. Uh, you, you got enough of them right, I guess. Well, that's what I'm saying. So we have for us you, to really hold that standard and talk about the minimum bar being good enough. But yeah, hey, no. all it says is pass. 
So that's true. Did I that's pass true. at the minimum it or was I up at the top? I don't know. It, it just it doesn't pass. Uh, other books have mentioned, there is a book called Wilderness CMS written by a guy we know named Dr. Hoggins. This, again, is not a plug for the book per se, but it is a pretty good cursory, I'll call it a, a how would I refer to them? Like a one-on-one textbook. I've read it, right? It's a good book. Yeah. But a lot of that content in there is a good framework for yeah. what you could expect to see on the test. I will say the best thing probably about about Doc Hawkins' book, The Wilderness EMX Textbook, is it covers a lot of the topics, right? You're going to get into basics of search and rescue operations. There's a little bit on air operations. There's a little bit on technical rescue. Now, it doesn't get you like technician level training on any of that, but it gives you a general overview on it. So if you've got zero experience, at least that book will give you some knowledge and information, how beneficial it might be on the test. I don't know. I'd have to go back and read those chapters to see if they applied at all. But it gives you, and of course, it gives you all the standard wilderness medicine things, you know, snake bites, heat, cold, exposure, orthopedics, et cetera, right? Those things that the common injuries and illness and common pathophysiology and treatment modalities found working in that environment. So the Wilderness EMS textbook is probably a very good investment if you're looking to get a general overview of all the subject areas across the board. Like it doesn't go into super detail on any one of them outside of the medicine piece, but it is a good general reference book. Yeah, I like it. I do. As Sean mentioned, it's not going to be the deepest on every topic in the book. It's just not big enough, right? You could you could fill a bookshelf with all of the information that, that Doc Hawkins has covered in the book. But yeah, I mean, but there, there's a, a reason the IBS for all the things you should know, right? Yeah. All right, yeah, and then like, finally, Auerbach. What's his first name? I can't think of his first name, Sean. I believe it's Paul. Paul S. Paul. Yes. Paul Auerbach People. has been like a staple in the wilderness EMS, wilderness medicine world for heck. I think as long or longer than I've been doing it. Probably longer oh. than I've been doing it. Yeah, he, he's considered the grandfather of wilderness medicine in the U.S. Yeah, he's the you grand. Know, he's, he's, he's the Gandalf of wilderness medicine. Right. Yeah, he he was he was one of the leading pioneers that really started putting this information together and codifying it in books. Right. And so Mike has his most current edition. I have his. I have the last two, and I read through the uh, I guess sixth edition or whatever my most current one is before taking the exam. And again, it gives very good overviews on all those, we'll call them traditional wilderness. And this is written truly from a more wilderness perspective, common injuries, ailments, et cetera, and their general treatment considerations. I don't remember, and I could be wrong, I don't remember if there are any specific dosing questions, like you should give this much of any one med, even though there are some kind of standardized treatment doses for a lot of things. And I could be wrong on that. And again, that could have just been my I don't remember, but again, I'll I'll bias back to where it assumes a baseline level of paramedicine knowledge. Like you should probably know your drugs. And the reason a lot of tests like this don't go into specific doses is because this is based on an EMS practitioner, not just a first aider, first responder type thing. And everybody has protocols they work off of and doses change. Drugs change, right? So this is not just for the United States, this is supposed to be out right now. I can't remember. The answer to that is yes. <laughs> Depends on what your context is. <laughs> Depends on the protocol and the, and the situation. Yeah. And I will tell you in my urban system, lidocaine is very popular amongst the medics over some of the other meds. That being said, so the test was also designed as an international test. So there might be some drugs on there that use particularly British or East, uh, European names for some of the meds. I know some people have encountered a couple of those questions where it's like, wait, I don't even know what that drug is. 
And it's the British word for like Tylenol, things like that. So, because <laughs> Tylenol yeah. is an American manufactured name, right? So, a lot of stuff too, just so you know, as you should expect in the medical world, the metric system, temperatures given in degrees Celsius. Some questions would give you a Celsius and a Fahrenheit, some were just Celsius, you know, a lot of metric. So, if you uh, passed med school or medical school or paramedic, I'm sorry and you were used to doing a lot of metric work and seeing things in Celsius. And then since then, everything's been back to Fahrenheit because that's just how you practice. You might want to brush up on your Celsius, at least know some of the key conversion areas, like 32F is what in Celsius, normal body temp is what in Fahrenheit and Celsius, things like that, right? So that you might not know how to do the full conversions, but you know, hey, is that hot? Is that cold? Is that normal, et cetera? At least get up on that normal say a standard kind of baseline on your on your temps in both Fahrenheit and Celsius. And I would say the same thing for Fahrenheit for our, our European friends, right? Sorry, America, we're different. So if you see some of those questions oh, where there's a, you know, your parent, your patient is sitting at 101 Fahrenheit and you're like, wait, what is that in Celsius? It's like, sorry, you're going to have to do the reverse math and figure out what some of the key Fahrenheits are. That's kind yeah, of... It feels like a pretty decent, based on N of two <laughs> experience. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're only getting um, an experience of two of us. Yeah. I and mean, Mike there are I guys have... out there. I, I know a guy that I, I work with that he sat IBSC exams for fun and passed because that's <laughs> just how he rolls, right? And I think he holds like three or four certifications from that. <laughs> yeah, no big deal, right? He's got his CCPC, his FPC, his community paramedicine, his tactical paramedicine. He'll probably sit the wilderness one and be like, yeah, dude, no problem. I nailed it. But I've got them all. For those of us that are not savants, right? You got to study <laughs> some stuff. Yes. Um, Again, just as a recap, right, the CoROM guide, the WMS clinical medical practice, and the NPS technical rescue manual were, were pretty foundational for my opinion. Yeah, um, I, and I would agree. And, and it is, as big, broad stroke things, think about, this is a medicine test, so it goes without saying that like medicine is going to come up, but also helicopter operations, rope rescue work, and long-term extended care, right? Yeah, understanding the pathophysiology of urine output and what that means and how to yeah. mitigate yeah. things, right? Things like that matter, right? Yes. And uh, as we have talked about since the day we started this podcast, right? Our game, the, the dance we do is assuming that we're going to be with the patient for 12 hours or more. It's yeah. not a 20 minute transport to the hospital, dump them off, give a report to the nurse, roll out. And this exam, I feel, encompasses that. It assumes that you're going to be with the patient for quite some time. Yeah. And, uh, and again, as, as Mike said, this is, yeah, this, this represents two people who took this test. How many different questions were on this beta exam? Or how many different test versions were there? We have no idea. No idea. Uh, None. And like I said, we're not trying to give you answers. I mean, we, uh, it's not that I'm the I'm keeper of the badge kind of guy, but if you're going to be a wilderness paramedic and earn this certification, then you should know these things. I'm not saying I'm a genius and I knew all of this ahead of time. I certainly had to study and I'm very glad I did. Particularly, and this is what I was going to bring up, is something else you need to remember. There are a couple of different or the potential to be some advanced practice skills and knowledge that are on here. If you remember our interview with David Pfeiffer, you know, he mentioned where you're not going to see detailed critical care questions on here, but you're going to see some critical care-like questions. You didn't have to interpret any blood gas fucking interpretations, values, or anything. But there are some, some questions on advanced procedures and a limited piece on, we'd say it would be definitely advanced practice, maybe bordering on the critical care side of practice that uh, 
you need to be prepared for. You know, you need to study those. And I think the the CoRAM field guide covers down on a lot of those. But then get into the IBSC website, get in there and look at their subject areas and go down those things and things that you think you know, good to go, put a little check mark next to those, maybe brush up on them a little bit. And some of those areas were like, whoa, that's new. I have no idea what that is. Like if you've never done rope work, you might need to devote a little more time to rope work or some of the advanced practice type procedures or knowledge. You'll see some things in there. And I think one of them actually says like uh, surgical procedures. Like you'd be like, whoa, what the hell does that mean? Well, get in the CoRAM manual again. Yeah. I'm a fan of it too. It's, it's, it's honestly a pretty good field manual for people that work in some of these environments. Can be a little bit much for some people, but for this this exam, probably something you should definitely look at. And with that, it's I mean, you really heat, right? Yeah, it's worth it. I wasn't sure if I wanted to purchase it or not because it is a purchase app. I am glad I did. Like I said, I have Mike's similar experiences. There's a lot of good information that's still in there. Certainly is helpful to Mike and I in the work we do in the woods for us. Just to kind of give you a reminder, maybe not everything is a direct one for one correlation. But it helps. It's it's a good overall bit of knowledge in there. Your WMS clinical practice guidelines, those you should just you should know that material, right? And I would recommend they do have abbreviated versions that really just cover the core topic of diagnosis and treatment modalities. If you've got the time to study, I'd read the full length ones. Some of those get a little dry because they get into a lot of the study, but it gives you a little bit more clinical background on the pathophysiology and the things they looked at. So which could be beneficial to you and Knowledge is always good in this world, so don't be afraid of those. I did want to mention, this is going to be a little more woo-woo than I typically get on the podcast, but anyone wanting to attempt these exams, they're not fundamentally easy. I'm sure somebody's going to send Mm. us a note on Facebook and be like, I didn't have a problem, but you're you're a savant. The value in pursuing this certification is not the certification. That's not the, the end goal, right? That's the objective. But the journey and the knowledge you're going to acquire and, and the improvements and, and depth and knowledge as a practitioner of medicine, especially in a wilderness environment, is going to pay dividends whether or whether or not you pass the test the first time you take it. If you approach any sort of exam like this, especially you know very difficult board certification exams, et cetera, et cetera, as an opportunity to give you a framework to increase your knowledge to become a better provider, you are going to come from a mindset of growth and knowledge acquisition, not passing the test. And if you approach things like this from that perspective, you will probably pass the test. If you approach things like this from the perspective of, I just need to know it long enough to puke it out on an exam and then run away and not care anymore, this is not the test for you, right? You have to, you have to be able to dive in and get in there. And if you approach it from that perspective that you want to learn things, and then by, by the by, you'll also pass an exam, you'll be fine. Yeah, no, this is definitely, I'd say even for those of us who've been doing this a long time, this is definitely an exam you do need to prepare for. There are certain key areas that you might want to brush up on. I don't have as much rope experience as Mike does, but I have a fair amount. I get to teach for some folks as well. And there's still some things in that book that I was like, oh yeah, those are some things I need to remember, right? Some of the key foundational pieces. Always think about safety with a lot of these things, like a lot of helicopter type questions or even environmental questions are all going to be just like national registry type tests, safety, provider safety, patient safety, things like that. You know, just... Don't discount what we'll call the not sexy topics, right? Like, I don't want to give away too much or anything, but it's like, I don't think, and I didn't have a question that related to this, but I don't think it's, they're going to show you necessarily a couple of diagrams on the IBC and say, which is the correct five to one haul system? 
right? But understanding mechanical advantage in general setup is going to be important. So you can't just gloss over certain things like safety, uh, foundational paramedic knowledge. Like if you're a little behind as a paramedic on your EKGs and basic knowledge and treatment modalities, you should definitely brush up on those too, because they're going to assume you know how to read an EKG. They're going to assume you know which medication would be appropriate to use for this situation. Uh, CPR function, who should be doing what for CPR in wilderness and austere environments, or how should that code essentially be run? They're going to assume you as a paramedic know that, and they're not going to, you're going to get questions on there and you're going to be like, huh, oh shit, I don't know the answer to that. And then it's shame on you. Should have known that one. If you function and you actually work in this environment, I would say you should know it. I would say just from my personal experience, my observation is this was very with the exception of maybe a couple of advanced practice type things, which aren't totally out of the realm of the possible for me. They're just not very high on the list of things that may occur. I thought this was test was a very fair evaluation of general wilderness paramedic knowledge and skill level. Yeah. It could have certainly been harder. It could have been much, much easier. Yeah. But I think if you are an experienced practicing wilderness paramedic, this test with, like I said, you, you review some of those areas that you're weak on, and you do a good overview on the rest of it, get yourself up to date with some of the current stuff. Remember what you learned 10 years ago and something might be outdated, right? So make sure you're current in your knowledge and you should probably do pretty well on this test. I imagine most people who apply themselves and actually put some time into studying all those subject areas, which if you look at that piece of paper, it's like three pages long. There's a lot of subject areas and you you honestly do, you really do need to have a decent base in most of them. So, all right, well- yeah. Do you have any other thoughts, Sean? No, I think that was pretty much it. I think overall, I think it was a pretty fair exam. And I think it used and tested uh, appropriate knowledge base. There could be, and again, this could be part of the 25 unscored items to see what might have been too hard or too much, uh, but you don't know. So some of those questions that are the unscored could be the very hard ones. They could be the very easy ones. They're just kind of testing the waters, potentially looking at new questions, or is this information way too far out of the general scope? So. Uh, overall, I think a fair test. I think it was good. I'm glad I took it. Much, much happier that I passed it. That's one less thing to worry about now. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's a pretty fair assessment of wilderness knowledge. I have to say, just personally, I'm very excited that this exam exists. Right? It's you know, I didn't think I'd be as excited as I was about it <laughs> when it when it was first announced. I thought, oh, I've been doing this a long time. Like, what's like, what's the deal? Yeah. But when I think about like my desire to take the CCPC exam, that's that's a level of knowledge and breadth in, in in-depth medicine that's beyond, quote-unquote, a standard paramedic. But I think I was coming from a biased point of view because I've been doing wilderness work since, like, my baby days as a brand new... Since, MC. like, forever. So yeah. this stuff was just table stakes, right? This is how it works. But I didn't realize that there's a lot of knowledge locked up in my head, and recognition for that is not necessarily a bad thing. So I'm excited that the industry and the community has this exam, and Quite frankly, if anybody else has different experiences, you've taken the test, you plan to take the test after you take the test, let us know. Like, we want to have the conversation. We'd love to hear from other people about it. The reality is that those of us that are engaged in wilderness paramedicine, even though, as David had mentioned in the podcast with him, there's a lot of folks that are doing wilderness medicine that don't think of themselves as doing wilderness medicine. Yeah. It's still a small subset of the total pre-hospital care provider space. And I think we need to be supportive and help each other progress in this space and not quote unquote, phone it in and allow ourselves to 
to get complacent and say, yeah, it's good enough. Like, I know how to do this thing. I've done it 10 times this year. We're good. I've gone into the woods and carried people out. It's fine. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of depth to medicine on whole. And when you add the complicating factor of the environment and the wilderness in general, right? It's the entire framework of our podcast, right? It becomes more complex and there are more things you have to care about. And if you really, really truly are striving to provide the best care, it's important that we work toward being good at those things. So yeah, I don't know if that meant anything, but I'll leave it in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. no. And again, I guess my final comment then with that is is also the same thing. It's like, will the WPC really amount to to the same level of care that people give critical care or flight medics? Mm, maybe, maybe not. I know there are some jurisdictions that are very much looking at this to certify their EMS personnel that do this work. Will it take off in the US? I don't know, but I am. I'm with Mike. I'm very glad it exists. If nothing else, just like earning some of the other certifications you can do in wilderness medicine. I just appreciate that it's a third party evaluation of my knowledge base, at least, that says, yeah, you know, you're not exactly an idiot when it comes to the materials contained within this realm. So I'm happy. All right. Well, I guess we'll cut yapping and uh, call this one a wrap. So we'll talk to you guys in the next episode. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the Mountain, Twitter at EMSOTM, or you can engage with us and a whole community of wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash wilderness EMS. Until the next episode, thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard, be safe, and do good work.